Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, good morning, everyone. Thank you all for joining us for today's First Friday free call-in for August. I bet you were all likely expecting to see Beth Mulcahy in her usual seat here answering questions today. But Beth does have a business conflict on her schedule today, so she's not able to make it. But we don't skip a beat around here. So today's questions are going to be answered by myself, Hayden DiLorenzo, and by my fellow attorney, Justin DeLuca. Let's go ahead and start with a few procedural matters today for this first Friday. Quick friendly reminder. If you haven't already done so, please submit your first Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. We'll be answering all questions between now and 10 a.m. And due to the large volume of questions that we do receive, just be reminded that this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. And if you do plan on submitting a question during um, this live session, please be sure to include the name of your association and your current role while submitting the question. Please also note that we may need to answer some of the live questions that come in today via email due to the large volume of questions. So thank you for your understanding. Okay, so jumping into it, again, welcome to Mulcahy Law Firm's August virtual first Friday call-in event. Um, My name, again, is Hayden DiLorenzo, and I am an associate attorney with Mulcahy Law Firm. As a little bit of background information, myself and Justin DeLuca, our associate attorneys with Mulcahy Law Firm, we're both graduates of the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU, and we've enjoyed working with HOA and condo boards to help solve their legal problems and issues over the past couple of years. So we're very excited to have the opportunity to um, answer your questions today and be here with you all. So before we get started... I would like to pass the mic on over to attorney Justin DeLuca. Justin's going to be giving us a quick update on the 2023 legislative session and the five new laws pertaining to HOAs and condos in Arizona. So I will turn it over to Justin. Thanks, Hayden. Hi, everyone. As Hayden introduced before, I'm Justin DeLuca. I'm an associate attorney with Mulcahy Law Firm. And I'm going to provide a quick recap of the new legislation during the 2023 Arizona legislature. So the Arizona legislature began the 2023 session on January 9th, 2023, and they adjourned earlier this week on July 31st, 2023. It was the longest legislative session in history, 203 days. The 2023 legislative session was a drawn out and contentious session with multiple extensions. Uh, Governor Hobbs vetoed 143 bills and 202 bills were signed into law. So there are five very relevant bills pertaining to HOAs and condos that were passed by the House and Senate and signed by the governor during the 2023 legislative session. We'll give you an idea of what those are. The five new HOA and condo laws revolve around the following topics. The first is HOAs and condominiums cannot ban any historic version of the American flag, including the Betsy Ross flag. The second revolves around insurance requirements, 
reporting of insurance claims, and annual disclosures to owners and condominiums. The third is revolving around future HOA regulation of public roadways located within a planned community. Number four deals with political activities within an HOA or a condominium. And the fifth bill deals with new requirements for board removal petitions in HOAs and condominiums. So these five, five bills are set to become law on October 30th, 2023. And our website has a good cheat sheet on all the new 2023 HOA and condominium legislation right on the homepage of our firm's website, www.mulcahylawfirm.com. So we'll also be sharing that link on the Zoom and the Facebook Live right now if you want to read a more detailed analysis of what's going on there. And I will, let's shift gears and get back into answering some questions and I'll pass it back to Hayden. Awesome, thanks, Justin. So we will go ahead and uh, start with our Q&A session at this time. Justin and I are going to be kind of tag teaming this and taking turns to answer some of your questions today. So I'll go ahead and uh, get started with the first question. So it looks like the first question is from a board secretary and committee chair. This question says, we would like to have social events in our clubhouse and rent out our clubhouse where we serve or allow alcohol. How do we best protect the HOA? and still allow a member to rent the room for their event and allow them to have alcohol on the premises? So this is a really good question. Use of clubhouses and social events are typical in most associations with regard to um, owners and tenants within the associations. If an owner wants to reserve the clubhouse for exclusive use, some associations will have some kind of formal process that will require the owner to maybe pay a fee or sign a waiver or provide some kind of proof of insurance or liquor license or permit for that event, depending on what the event is going to consist of. And then some associations also require the owner to pay for an association-approved off-duty security officer to be present during the event to maintain order and safety. Use of clubhouses by third-party non-owners are typically not allowed by associations but we are starting to see more questions on this topic and other HOAs and condominiums around the U.S. are discussing renting common area as a means to get extra income for the association. So associations, if they're considering doing this, should be sure to check their CCNRs to ensure this isn't prohibited. Additionally, another consideration is that opening the clubhouse or common areas to the general public for rental could be expensive in the long run because it could force the association to need to comply with some federal rules, some federal statutes, in, including the Americans with Disability Act, the ADA, and require that the common area restrooms, entrances, parking lots, et cetera, be up to city or county code for accessibility. Some other considerations are that the association should check with their insurance company to see if their policy allows or prohibits First of all, associations providing alcohol at no charge or for a charge, you know, at social events in the clubhouse. And then second of all, to see if it prohibits or allows owners or tenants bringing their own alcohol into the events to be consumed at the clubhouse. And then lastly, they should check with their insurance company to see if renting the clubhouse to third party owners to see about those kinds of considerations as well. Anyone, including the association, owners, tenants, 
third parties, anyone serving alcohol in an event should check with the Department of Liquor Licenses and Control and their city or county to see if they need a liquor license or permit for any events where they're going to, going to be serving alcohol. Our firm does have a couple of cheat sheets that might be relevant on this question. So if you're interested, um, we do have our federal laws cheat sheet. And then we've also got a link to city liquor license information um, within Arizona. So Morgan from our office is going to be sharing those in the comments now. So feel free to go ahead and check those out. Okay, we'll go ahead and move on to our next question. Um, This question states, we are a rather unique complex being a patio home community that is established under the Condominium Act. It was indicated that condominium owners own a percentage of the common areas. I don't recall seeing any indication of this in our documents, which we have recently updated, or even ever hearing of such. I have always understood or thought that the association owned the common areas. Okay, this is a great question as well. Under Arizona law, patio homes or townhomes are going to either be a condominium or a planned community. Um, And so different Slightly different laws will apply to each of those. The deed to every unit in a condo will indicate that that owner owns the unit in addition to a percentage interest in the common areas. So that's something you could look to if you are wondering about that. Something else you could definitely look to is the CCNRs. Usually the definition section will indicate under the definition of the common elements who owns those common elements. So whether that be the association or the owners of the units. So if this was a planned community, the common areas would be owned by the association and a good place to look to know whether your association qualifies as a condominium or a planned community is going to be the definition section in the CCNRs under common areas. So if common areas are owned by uh, the association, you're likely a planned community if owned by owners, likely a condominium association. And our firm does have a couple of cheat sheets and resources on this matter that we're going to go ahead and share with you. Um, The first is our cheat sheet on what is a community association. The second is going to be the definition of a condominium um, pursuant to Arizona Revised Statutes Section 33-1217. And then the third and last is going to be the definition of a planned community under ARS 33-1802. So we will put those all in the comments for you guys now. Okay, so moving on to the next question. This question is from a board member. And the question is, who owns the roof? Our community is made up of single-story duplexes. The CCNRs are very comprehensive and include repair, maintain, and replacement of the roof, which is a tiled roof. Insurance agencies always quote these as condos, However, half of the board members categorize their purchase as a single family home with some common elements. Okay, so this is a good question. And it is unfortunately a question that's going to be a little difficult to answer without taking a closer look at your association's CCNRs. Um, But typically, if your association maintains, repairs, and replaces the roofs of the duplexes, you're likely a condo. But again, it's not a question that we can definitively answer without taking a closer look at your association's CCNRs. Okay, I'll throw the next questions on over to Justin. Okay, so the next question we have involves security cameras. We have security cameras in the common areas of our condo buildings. When vandalism occurs, do we have the right to post pictures? 
for example, on bulletin boards or the email to owners of security camera pictures showing this vandalism in order to help identify the responsible party? The answer is yes, you may do that, but your association may want to post signage in the common areas, indicating that footage from the cameras directed at the common areas can be distributed to third parties if an owner makes a records request to see it, and it can be distributed to the police if vandalism occurs. And as always with security cameras, you want to keep in mind that the association wants to avoid invading anyone's reasonable expectation of personal property. So cameras should be pointed at common areas and not at individual units or homes. Next question is, oh, and actually we we have a blog on security cameras that we can um, share with you in the chat as well if you want some more information on that. The next question is, can our association hold the HB 2298 parking on public streets vote prior to 91 days after the close of legislation? Because the annual meeting is the third week of October. So the answer is, since the effective date of HB 2298 is not until the very end of October, um, it, it is you should not hold this vote prior to the enactment of the new law. That's not advisable. We advise that the association should wait until the law has been enacted, and then you may hold the vote. Next question. We understand that homeowners are permitted to audio or video record open board meetings subject to some guidelines. On occasion, the board itself records its open meetings using Zoom. Are the board's video recordings of open meetings subject to homeowner document requests in the same fashion as other public association records? And then despite the homeowner's right to record meetings themselves. It's our opinion that if the board keeps the Zoom recordings, they are a book and record of the association and an owner may request to see the copy of the recording and the association should provide that. And we have two cheat sheets, one on open meeting laws, and rules for recording association meetings. And then the other is a top 10 list on what you should know about records requests. So those will be in the chat and those are good resources to look to for that as well. And I will pass it back to Hayden. Awesome, thanks, Justin. Good question so far. So the next question is going to be from a board member. Um, This question says, a homeowner recently passed away and his estate is in probate. Dues are not being paid during this time. Does the board have a fiduciary responsibility to assess late fees, or can the board waive them due to the circumstances? July and August late fees were waived at the August meeting. Okay, so great question. So the board has a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the association. So it's up to the board how the board wants to handle this particular situation. As long as the board is acting in the best interest of the association, then um, then it's really going to be up to them. The board does have the authority to waive the late fees, but if the board does this, homeowners who have had to pay late fees in the past may be upset if they learned that the board decided to waive late fees in this circumstance. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, In my opinion, it's best to uniformly charge late fees when assessment payments are late and not waive late fees unless it's a condition of settlement or some kind of incentive to get an owner to pay in full um, with regard to past due assessments or other amounts. So yeah, great question. Okay, next question is also from a board member. Um, This question says, is it either required by law or is a normal practice for an HOA to re-sign each vendor contract annually, even if the vendor is performing in accordance with the contract? 
and the contract has no defined end date. Similarly, is it either required by law or common practice for a person taking on the role of president to re-sign all vendor contracts that are in effect when that person steps into the president role? Okay, so it's a good question. So as an initial note, generally speaking, we believe it's best practice to have a valid written contract with your vendors for a specified time period. So, you know, not having an end date is something that shouldn't be happening. Under Arizona law, specifically ARS section 44-101 relating to the statute of frauds, this dictates that some contracts must be in writing and signed by the party to be charged in order to be enforceable in a court of law. These kinds of contracts would probably fall under that statute of frauds. So you're going to want to make sure that that's, those contracts are written and they have a um, definitive end date. Now, it's not customary for a new president to re-sign a contract with a term that is not yet expired just because there's been a change in leadership on the board. So the prior president had the authority to sign the contract if the board voted to enter into the contract and the change in leadership on the board will not void this prior contract. So that's not a concern. The next question is also from a board member. This says, do you have any cheat sheets or examples of well-written dog policies? We have been having issues of dog-on-dog violence, and we want to be able to find owners immediately after an incident if their dog is off-leash and attacks another dog. So this is a great question. We do get a lot of questions on dog policies and how associations should be dealing with that. So we do have um, several cheat sheets that may assist you with this. One is going to be on dog issues, and the other one is on enforcement of the CCNRs. Unfortunately, our firm doesn't have any cheat sheets specifically on dog policies, but we are happy to help you write this policy so that you can eliminate some of the dog issues that you're having in your community. So feel free to um, reach out to us and we can definitely help you with that. And with regard to those cheat sheets that I mentioned, we will go ahead and um, share those in the chat with you right now. All right. And I will throw the next question on over to Justin. Okay. So we have a question about um, discussions and voting by email. Uh, when the situation is not an emergency. Rather than in an open meeting or a Zoom with all homeowners, the voting takes place by email, but in a non-emergency situation. And this association says that for them, it has involved everything from a current contract up for renewal at a small increase, tree removal, and a homeowner requesting a gate. The topics mentioned there should not have been discussed and voted on via email because they were not emergency matters. These topics should be discussed and voted on during an open board meeting. And the association should review the Arizona open meeting laws and make sure they're always in compliance with that. But in this situation, those topics should have been discussed at an open board meeting. We have a question about House Bill 2298. There was some confusion about the phrasing in the bill because they mentioned two time periods. One was any planned community for which the declaration is recorded after December 31st, 2014. Then at a separate point, it talks about a different time period. It says after the period of declarant control for any planned community for which the declaration was recorded before January 1st, 2015. And this this association had their CCRs recorded in 2009. So the wording of the bill was a little confusing, but there, there are different, it applies differently whether the declaration is recorded after December 31st, 2014, or before um, January 1st, 2015. But since your association CCNRs were recorded in 2009, if your association is a planned community, 
if the declarant is no longer in control, and if the streets in your association are dedicated to the public, then HB 2298 will apply to your association. And we will provide a link to that statute in the chat. Following question, can a closed board meeting be held to discuss the qualifications and the appointment of board members to fill vacated positions? Um, This association's documents allow the board to appoint vacancy replacements, and those discussions would involve personal strengths and weaknesses of candidates. So the association is wondering if that can be a closed board meeting. In our firm's opinion, the discussion of qualifications of board appointees doesn't fall under any of the following exceptions to the open meeting law, which are the listed exceptions. Exception one is legal advice from an attorney for the board of the association on final resolution of any matter for which the board received legal advice or that concerned pending or contemplated litigation, the board may disclose information about that matter in an open meeting, except for matters that are required to remain confidential by the terms of a settlement agreement or judgment. The second is pending or contemplated litigation. The third exception is personal health or financial information about an individual member of the association an individual employee of the association or an individual employee of a contractor for the association, including records of the association directly related to the personal health or financial information about an individual member of the association, an individual employee of the association or an individual employee of a contractor for the association. The fourth exception is matters relating to the job performance of compensation of health records of or specific complaints against an individual employee of the association or an individual employee of a contractor for the association who works under the direction of the association. And the fifth exception is discussion of a member's appeal of any violation cited or penalty imposed by the association, except on request of the affected member that the meeting be held in an open session. So those are the exceptions to the open meeting law and generally You just, outside of those exceptions, you probably want to be following open meeting laws. Thanks, Justin. Um, The next question is going to be from a board member. This question says, a realtor um, slash owner is flipping a house and told us it's under contract with a contingency for a late September close. He recently listed the same house as a short-term rental, which is prohibited. He says it's just in case the sale falls through and he refuses to remove the listing. This makes no sense. Can he legally rent out a house that is under contract? So I do agree with you that it makes no sense. If short-term rentals are prohibited by your association CCNRs, um, this owner is in violation of the CCNRs. So they're not permitted to enter into the short-term rental or lease of the property. Whether that house is under contract or not, this isn't going to be permitted by your documents. Um, There is no valid exception under these facts to the short-term rental prohibition. Now, your board may want to send the owner a letter requesting that he or she remove the short-term rental or the advertisement for the short-term rental from any publication that might be advertising it. So Airbnb, Verbo, anything like that. And then in the letter, you can also remind the owner that if he or she violates the short-term rental prohibition provision in your CCNRs, um, there will be stiff penalties. So you can threaten a fine or a potential lawsuit. The association could also send the short-term rental advertisement company a letter asking the company to take down that that advertisement because it's in violation of the association's documents. So that's just another avenue to consider if you can't get that owner to comply. All right, great question. 
So moving on to the next question, this one's also going to be from a board member. The question says, we are a 55 plus community and a couple of our homeowners are in a dispute over smoking. One owner sits and smokes in his carport, which bothers his neighbor. We feel this is a neighbor versus neighbor dispute and the board is reluctant to get involved. However, the owner who is complaining has also asked us to consider becoming a smoke-free community. We believe that this would only be possible in community areas, not in private homes. Are we wrong? I would agree with you that this does appear to be, you know, a neighbor versus neighbor dispute. But if your association's documents or the CCNRs do have a nuisance provision in them, the association's board may need to become involved in this matter if the smoking is causing a nuisance. You know, in order to kind of analyze this a little bit further, we would need to take a look at your CCNRs for your association and determine if the association's documents can be amended to make the community a smoke-free community. But at first glance, I, I do think that the board would only have the authority to mandate that common areas be um, smoke-free, not privately owned homes. Okay. So the next question is from a resident candidate running for the board. According to the Arizona Open Meeting Laws, if the board is going into executive session after an open workshop or board meeting, does this have to be noticed with the 48-hour meeting announcements and then presented again on the meeting agenda for the attendees at the meeting? Also, do they have to announce to the attendees that they are moving to executive session, giving one of the five reasons listed in the Arizona statute? So please explain how this should be legally handled. That's a great question. Arizona law is going to require very specific requirements. So Arizona law requires, let's see, the language of the law is as follows. Executive session meetings of the board must be noticed just like a regular board meeting. Um, 48 hours in advance of the meeting by conspicuous posting or other reasonable means. Now, Arizona law was amended in the past few years to also require that the board identify the paragraph under the executive session topics under the open meeting law that authorizes the board to close the meeting. And they have to do that either one before entering into the executive session. So the board could announce it out loud, for example, at the end of the regular board meeting and make sure that the minutes reflect the statement or by placing this information on the agenda of the regular board meeting to meet the requirements of the law. Or secondly, they could put it on the actual notice of an executive session meeting. So either of those would suffice in that situation. All right, and Justin, back over to you. Sure, thank you, Hayden. Next question is, I need to know why as a board member of my community, my management company can do whatever they want with respect to my community. They issued checks to their vendor with whom we have a contract for over $6,000 without approval. We as the board found out 35 days after the fact and none of the required work was done. Is there an Arizona statute that describes this? We've come to find out the state will not allow us the use of arbitration. So we agree the situation is not acceptable. The first step would be the board should escalate this matter to the head of the management company make him or her aware of the situation. And if that doesn't work, the board's legal counsel should get involved to help get the money back. So the next question, okay, so the, the documents allow parking on front side yards. Can our HOA, the question is, can our HOA limit parking to street, garage, and concrete driveways? Related, can the architectural committee deny adding a concrete driveway on the front side yard adjacent to the existing driveway. 
And the city of Scottsdale allows parking on front side yards if there's a hardscaping border. So it's it's difficult for us to answer this question without seeing your CCNRs. But generally speaking, if the association's documents allow or prohibit something and the provision is reasonable, um, it is likely enforceable under the law. Our current president and board members are under the impression that they don't have to follow open meeting laws uh, because of the attorney general letter they found online titled Homeowners Associations and the Open Meeting Law. A board member said he's the top cop. Several of us homeowners have been following, but the president told us she doesn't care. We are at a loss of what to do. The board continues to do as they please, regardless of CCNRs, bylaws, and board procedures. We're very sorry this is happening at your association, but the attorney general opinion does not allow boards to violate the open meeting law. Boards still must follow the open meeting law, regardless of what the attorney general opinion stated. And owners may want to file a complaint with the Arizona Department of Real Estate to get a ruling on this from an administrative law judge because the board must follow open meeting laws. So I'll pass it back to Hayden. Thanks, Justin. Okay, so the next question is from a homeowner. The question says, what other options do association members have when their board spends more of the HOA's money than what was approved in an election measure other than an ADRE complaint? This is a tough question to answer without all the facts and a full review of your documents. So we would probably need to see those um, in order to answer your question more fully. Okay, so the next question is going to be from a board member. Um, This question says, what do you do when the president of the board refuses to respond to any emails from the management company or any board members? He was appointed in February of 2023. He has never turned in the new management contract or he ever been a signer on the HOA accounts. Um, His unit is currently for sale and he has moved out. Because of previous issues with this owner filing false complaints with the AG's office against the HOA, the board is hesitant to remove the president. So this is a tough situation. Our firm would recommend that the board or the management company go ahead and send a letter um, to the president asking for his resignation as a board member um, due to non-participation. If the president refuses to resign, or excuse me, if the board refuses to sign, the board may want to, if the president refuses to resign, my apologies, um, the board may want to consider stripping the president of his title as an officer by a board vote if the bylaws do allow for that or remove the director pursuant to Arizona law. Thanks for that question. The next question is also going to be from a board member. So this question says, our management company has recently been bought out and underwent a merger with a larger company. It seems the service regarding our community manager has been slipping. Bids from vendors, the board approved. Bids from vendors, the board approved. The vendors are not being notified of approval. Some for six weeks, and the board has had to follow up with these vendors. Fine schedules not adhered to for violations of noncompliance. Notice of violations not sent out as requested by the board. How do we get control of this situation, especially since the management company works on behalf of the board? So this is a great question. You know, we would suggest that you talk to the regional manager or the president of the company regarding your concerns. If meeting with the company representatives doesn't make things better, you may also want to review your contract, you know, your contract with the management company. Um, It may contain some provision which would um, indicate how your association can proceed 
in the event of non-performance of the management company. So I would definitely recommend taking a look at that as well. All right, next question over to you, Justin. Okay, we are planning to raise the monthly HOA fee starting in January, 2024. Is there any legal process we'll need to follow? The answer to this question depends on whether your association is a condominium or a planned community. Uh, The Arizona Condominium Act does not have a limitation on assessments, but the Arizona Planned Community Act does place a limitation on the amount the regular assessment can be increased by the association each year. ARS 33-1803A states in relevant part, unless limitations in the community documents would result in a lower limit for the assessment, the association shall not impose a regular assessment that is more than 20% greater than the immediately preceding fiscal year's assessment without the approval of the majority of the members of the association. Once you have determined how much you need to increase your assessment and then how much you are allowed to increase that assessment by law, the board will want to vote on that increase and communicate it to the membership as part of the upcoming year's new budget. The next question refers to new Arizona law 2251. It refers to the notification given to HOA members on a yearly basis regarding the type of insurance carried. Can the HOA send each year the required insurance information or do we need to have a legal firm do that? And can you explain what new law 2251 actually requires the HOA to do? So this bill would require property insurance to cover the units only if the insurance of the individual units is required by the condominium documents. So this would make each unit owner an insured person under the policy with respect to liability or property damage arising out of the unit owner's interest in the common elements if required by the, gov- by the condominium documents or the membership in the association. Prior to reporting a loss under the association's master property insurance policy, a unit owner shall report the loss to the association and give the association 10 business days to provide the unit owner with a copy of its written decision stating whether the association will be reporting a claim to the master policy. If the association decides not to report a claim to the master policy, the association shall provide the reason for the decision in the written decision. The association shall inform each unit owner annually in writing of both one, the unit owner's responsibility for the association's insurance deductibles for all property and liability coverage, and two, the amount of each deductible. All right, I'll take over the next question. So the next question is from a board member. This question says, we are a self, uh, we are self-managed and are contemplating hiring a management company. Our dues are $24 per month. Can we raise our dues to cover the expense of a management company? So the answer to this question, unfortunately, is it depends. We would have to check your association's documents, but likely your association's documents would allow you to do this. Um, We do have a great cheat sheet on this topic, which we will, I believe, be sharing with you in the chat at this time. So when the board develops and presents its budget for the upcoming year, it should be factoring in the anticipated cost of a management company as well. So likely, yes. Okay. So the next question is from a board member. Can the HOA be held liable if a member's family or friends or anyone are injured by a speeding vehicle on a public street in the confines of the HOA? If the HOA chooses not to install speed mitigation devices, for example, a speed bump, after soliciting and having a traffic study done by the city, the study shows excessive speeds, a number of incidents, 100% plus the post speeds. 
Um, the city is agreeing to maintain the speed limiting devices if and when the HOA funds the city to install them. Okay, so this is a good question. And I would recommend that the association take a hard look at the speeding problems within your association. We can't say definitively whether there would be liability in the event of an accident, as that's going to be very fact dependent. But um, my inclination is that the board should be implementing some kind of speed reducing measures, you know, in addition to asking members to be mindful, um, not to be speeding within the association. And I would do this via newsletter, via uh, email, just a reminder to the owners to be mindful of that. Our law firm does have a great cheat sheet on speeding in associations, and we'll go ahead and share that with you. Next question is from a board member. This question says, can the board modify the current fines policy to stipulate that any payments made to the HOA, dues or assessments, will first be applied towards any outstanding fines assessed? HOA's fines policy is a standalone policy adopted unanimously by the board in 2018. Escalating fines for not curing notified violations are specified in the policy, and non-payment of fines um, is not currently addressed in the policy. So in our firm's opinion, no, the board shouldn't be doing this. State law has very specific requirements as to how payments should be applied to owners' accounts. So the payment is first applied to the principal amounts of that nature and then to fines. So we would recommend referring to either Arizona Revised Statute Section 33-1807A for a planned community or ARS 33-1256A for a uh, condominium. Um, and that will give you more information on how those payments should be applied. That is very specifically set forth in Arizona law. It's very important that your, um, that your association be applying those in accordance with those laws. Okay, we have just a couple of questions left. We're getting to the end here, folks. The next question is, I live in a lake community with multiple pumps for the water. I want us to have an inventory list with model numbers, serial numbers, replacement costs, et cetera, in which document would be appropriate to list that inventory and other HOA assets. We suggest just keeping this information within the association's books and records. It makes it easier to pass down to future board members if you also keep an electronic copy of this information. But just that you're correct, that is great information to keep in the association's books and records. The HOA is enforcing homeowners to not park overnight and they're sending out letters. But if it's not in the CCNRs, is it enforceable? This is a an association specific question. And to give a complete answer, we'd really have to review the association's governing documents to determine if the board can enforce that type of provision. If a restriction of that nature is not in the CCRs or bylaws, uh, it is not likely enforceable. But um, we would have to to give of legal opinion, we would have to review the specific association documents involved. All right, thanks, Justin. So it looks like we have reached the end of our questions today. Again, we wanna thank you all so much for submitting questions and for joining us today for our firm's first Friday virtual event. Um, we had over 44 attendees on Zoom and several live viewers on Facebook as well. So that's awesome. Thank you guys for joining us. Now, just as a reminder, don't forget to join us for our firm's 2023 virtual HOA and condo academy class number eight on Tuesday, August 15th. And that's going to be from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Um, in this class, we're going to discuss how to select a management company, 
the importance of the role of a community manager, and how to work effectively with vendors. Also, we'll be providing the nuts and bolts of contracts. Um, this session will conclude with a question and answers uh, session. So you guys are not going to want to miss that. Make sure to join us for that. As another note, our next live virtual first Friday event is Friday, September 1st. So look forward to that. And lastly, please consider leaving our firm a Google review. Um, these do really help us and it's always good to get some feedback from you guys. So we're going to go ahead and share a link in the chat on how you can leave a review. And, you know, we're always happy to get feedback from our um, valued customers and clients so that we can continue to improve our services. So that would be very much appreciated. That link should be in the chat now. And um, with that, we are going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. So thank you again for joining us. And we hope to see you all later this month. Thanks, everyone. Have a nice day. Don't forget, our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 